Welcome to the Gaining Momentum Podcast with your hosts, Abby and Megan. This is the podcast where we try our best to parent our kids for the world we want them to grow up in and the world we live in now. Welcome, welcome everyone to this special episode of Gaining Momentum. Megan here, and I'm with my trusty co-host, Abby. How's it going? It's going good. I'm so happy to be back on the mic with you, even if it's just for a quick intro. I know. It's given us a little taste to get us through to season two. (laughs) So what are we doing today? What are we introing? We are introing. We are interesting. (laughs) We are are. interesting. We are. (laughs) To be fair. Man, we are rusty. We are rusty and we are interesting, (laughs) keeping it that way. (laughs) But we are introing a very special episode of Gaining Momentum with our crossover with Val from the podcast Thirst World Problems. So this was a really fun conversation we had, I don't even know, like I guess a month or so ago, maybe. Maybe it was longer. What is time? Yeah, exactly. Um, And we, it was really cool. Bao was interested in digging in a bit on some of the stuff that we explored in our gender conversation. So we were really appreciative that, you know, he was so interested and engaged with that topic and he wanted to have a bit of a crossover conversation that would explore some of the stuff that he wanted a little bit more information about and wanted to dig in a little bit about. So this was that conversation. It was a really fun conversation, challenging one in really good ways. And he asked a lot of really important questions that maybe other people had come to mind when we were having some of those conversations. Anything you want to add, Abby? I just want to say thanks to Belle for not just keeping the questions to yourself, but deciding that you wanted Mm -hmm. to know more and have a conversation about it. And I hope that we will be having more conversations with Belle in the future. So if you need a refresher, go ahead back and listen to our two-part conversation on gender, Sifting Through the Bullshit and Binary Schminery. I believe those were episodes four and five. And while we're at it, go ahead and hop on over and give Thirst World Problems a listen when you're done with this episode. Enjoy. Hey, what's up? Hey, everyone. Thanks for having us, Belle. Thanks for coming on. And it's just been one of those things where I don't know if you guys do this at all, but you know, you're listening to a podcast and you're either at the grocery store, walking through the park and you hear something they say on the podcast and you're like, whoa, hey, and you start talking to yourself or laughing out loud or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, I wish I could call into this show right now. So that's kind of (laughs) what we're doing here now. I've been listening to, uh, I guess, your two-parter on uh, gender with mm-hmm. a little bit of in-between. So you guys have these things called mini-sodes as well, right? Yes. Yes, we do. I'm just assuming that everyone listening understands and knows what we're talking about here, but you want to give them a little breakdown, I guess, of your podcast? Sure. Gaining Momentum is essentially a parenting podcast where Abby and I are trying to create space where we can talk about the social justice concerns that we have and how we need those things to be informing how we parent. And we also try to use our friendship, which we think is pretty special, as a vehicle for those conversations. So I'm a white woman and Abby is a black woman and we tried to 
do some modeling around what some of those tough conversations can look like and how some of our experiences might differ as parents because of who we are as well. Do you want to add anything, Abby? Yeah, I just want to say our tagline is trying our best to parent our kids for the world we want them to grow up in and the world we live in now. And I think that sums it up pretty well. We're talking about things that are important to us so that things will be a little bit easier for our kids on their journey. Yeah, we want it to be like a shame-free space too, where we can have conversations uh, with people, with each other and the people in our community about things that sometimes make people uncomfortable to talk about. And we want it to be kind of a safe way to do that. Awesome. Awesome. And I want to thank you guys for uh, letting me come on and uh, hopping on these mics here with me and just having this conversation about uh, gender, because that was the one that really stood out to me. Like, I know you guys have been tackling some heavy conversations. I know you guys did another two-parter on race. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was like, oh, man, I really want to call in and talk to these guys about some of these <laughs> issues. That mm-hmm. never did. But then when the gender one came on, I said, OK, now we've 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 got it. I need a little bit more information. Just want to get some insight from where you guys are coming from. And no lie, as we go through this, I know you guys put a big importance on educating yourself and trying to be better, especially with mm-hmm pronouns and using the correct language. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to do that, but please correct me when I screw it up because that (laughs) will definitely happen throughout this conversation. And correct us also. We make mistakes too. Absolutely. Well, if I catch any of your mistakes, I will definitely point them out, but I'm not making any promises (laughs) in that regard. The first place I want to start is with, well, let's just start right here. Backing it up a bit, where you said the different things that you felt that um, being male would give you access to. Did you Mm -hmm. feel that you were able to access those things too? Well, and I think this is where, like, my sense of injustice kicks in. Okay. Because I think I, I was, but I think I was able to notice how my access looked different or like the value that was placed on my access and i'm not even talking by like my parents or anything i'm talking like the world at large like i think i was acutely aware that like people didn't care as much about my sports mm-hmm. i assume you remember saying that megan mm-hmm. on the pod you can totally relate to that yes i definitely remember and uh yeah it's it still stands <laughs> <laughs> As I was listening to that, and this is probably how most of this conversation is going to be framed for me, is the episodes that you did on race, I find almost go hand in hand with what you guys were talking about in gender, Mm -hmm. except at times I found a difference between the perspectives of it. And that's kind of where I really wanted to be able to sit down and talk to you two about is just the fact that of the differences between the way sometimes we look at race and gender. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. as I guess a cisgendered male of a visible minority group. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) I won't lie. I had to Google like after listening to it, I had to Google exactly what that was because I'd never, I've heard the term, I guess, and I've just never really Mm Knew, knew the working definition mm-hmm. of it. So once again, already learning, just listening in a few episodes mm-hmm. of uh, gaining momentum. So make sure if you guys are listening to this, go out and do the same thing. I guess the perspective I've always taken is that the two almost walk, walk in parallel as far as gender and race goes. So when we were talking about, I guess, access and some of the things that you were or weren't able to do, I guess, growing up as a female or cisgendered Mm -hmm. female, right? And relating to that, it kind of went into the whole topic of, 
I guess, the pressure that society puts on you and the expectations that society puts on you simply based on, I guess, how you come out of mm-hmm. the oven, essentially, right? Yeah, absolutely. So when you were saying, and I think it went into talking about like risk taking and different things, I think Abby mentioned too, like her brothers were able to date differently mm-hmm. and there was different expectations than would be placed on placed on mm-hmm. females. I kind of thought, okay, I, I understand that. And I understand that that there is a terrible double standard to it. But as far as parenting goes and preparing, I guess, your child for the world that they're going to be living Uh in, is it we should be parenting towards the world that we want them to be living in or that we hope the direction the world is going or the reality of what the world actually is? That's a juicy question. Yeah, I like it. Do you want to start, Abby? Sure. Well, I think we have to have a foot in both because, you know, we have to plan for the world that we want them to live in, but we still live in this world that currently exists. So talking about race and gender going hand in hand, I would love to parent my child as though racism weren't a thing, but then that's doing an injustice to him because he's still, at this point, a black male. And so that is something that I need to prepare him for and parent him for and discuss and talk about while at the same time creating within him the ability to have the empathy and the understanding to accept people who are like him and people who are different with him and to explore who he is moving forward so that hopefully he will have that open world to grow up in that we would we want for him Mm -hmm. what do you think meg Oh, I totally, I was, we, we often like share the same brain. And so uh, my thought was my immediate thought when you asked that question, Belle was both like both Mm -hmm. sides of that same coin. Um, because, uh, just echoing what, what Abby said, I think in my perspective, I want to lead with where I want to go. So really like talking foremost about what we want to change and what's not fair and what's unjust, but then also acknowledging, you know, what, the reality is and where there are risks to people's safety and well-being Mm -hmm. and so how do we both like push the needle forward in terms of progress and changing Mm -hmm. systems but also equip kids to take care of themselves and make sure that they are moving through like the reality of the cultural moment in a way that doesn't further put them at risk but that's a really really slippery slope especially when we talk about young women and like sexuality and you know that's the place where my brain goes and just thinking about like risk around um violence but i think i've had lots of conversations actually with other parents about like i want to promote freedom of expression and freedom of sexuality and all of those things in my kids whether they're daughters or sons or whatever but you know this does tend to be like a gendered piece around young women but also I want them to be safe and I want I don't want anything to happen to them and so for me it's always it's a yes and it's not leading with the safety piece that makes kids or young women feel like they are responsible for something that might happen to them but there needs to be an awareness that there is unfair, unjust things that are happening and there are components of our identity that sometimes can put us at risk. So it's just like holding both ends of that and it's like totally imperfect, right? Like I wish uh-huh. I had a silver bullet to be like, this is how we do that. But I think it depends on you. It depends on your family. But I would say like trying to like hold both ends of that at the same time are how I would say we move forward in those discussions. 
Totally. And like parenting's hard. That's part of what makes it so difficult, right? Because you're trying <laughs> no, to do not. so many it's things. It's just so easy, guys. So no problem. <laughs> Nailing it. Yeah. <laughs> Another reason I really wanted to talk to you guys is because I'm raising uh, a young mm-hmm. daughter here, and I thought that hopefully I'd come on here, and then you guys would have that uh, <laughs> silver bullet for me. <laughs> Obviously, here's what so you need to do. Definitely wanted to get your perspective on that. <laughs> like, yes, please. <laughs> Because I guess, Megan, uh, getting back to the way mm-hmm. you ended that uh, response there, talking about how unjust things really are, society really is, and how that hinges and how that's obvious and you're trying to prepare mm-hmm. your child, especially young girls, to go out into the world and be confident and be poised, but also, I guess, understanding that unjustness that lies out there and just lies in wait, essentially. Like when we take a look at assault mm-hmm. numbers and sexual assaults mm-hmm. that incredibly disproportional between male and mm-hmm. females, when it comes down to, I then, I guess, explaining that to, uh, to a young girl, how do you, how do you go about explaining? Well, in, in this situation, all things being equal, daughter and son, same age, mm-hmm. same everything, everything being equal, it's safer for the son, Michael, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, to go over to the convenience store down the street as opposed to like your daughter. Like it's, and how would your daughter, I guess, take that as growing up as two females? Mm-hmm. How would that response be for, for you guys personally? Yeah, I can. I I would say, I mean, so this one is like such a loaded one because I Uh think like we have to even back it up a little bit further. And this is why like community and broader discussion is so important because I think as much the conversation lives with parents of sons, right? And how parents of boys are talking about that same issue around consent Uh because sometimes we do get stuck thinking that safety lives with equipping girls and Mm -hmm. safety actually doesn't live with equipping girls it it lives with how we talk to our boys Mm -hmm. um and i say boys both boys and girls can be perpetrators but just statistically there's an over representation of cis men in terms of that kind of violence and i also want to know boys can definitely be victimized as well but i just i think like my knee-jerk reaction is always yes and as important if not more important is how are we having those conversations live with our young men and sort of like reframe framing that conversation around consent uh, with them. What do you think, Abby? I would agree with that. Absolutely. But in terms of, I guess that's a little bit of the dichotomy we're talking about of trying to parent for the world that we live in and the world we want our kids to live in. Totally. Because in an ideal world, people would be having this conversation with their children and explaining how unacceptable it is to claim ownership over somebody else's body other than your own. Yeah. Uh, So those conversations are important, of course, to have with all of our children, but to have with boys. And then on the flip side, we have to have those conversations with girls, just sort of about the accepted norms in our society for the expectations that are placed on them and for the behaviors that are expected of them and what that sometimes looks like when you don't fit that mold. So we want our girls to be able to explore gender, to be able to explore sexuality, to be able to just explore every facet of their being without being penalized for it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we also have to talk to them about the way that things are and also emphasize the fact that anything that happens to them is not their fault. Mm -hmm. That's the fault of a society that is failing them every day when it comes to these topics. Because I love there that you're like, you're talking both about like empowerment and like being empowered to explore and to like not be hindered by fear. Mm -hmm. Um, But also talking about shame and blame, because those are the things that I think get taken away when we focus too much on equipping girls to not be assaulted or to not um, shame, blame and fear become 
central instead of empowerment and yeah exploration right moving away from what the opposite of shame and blame would be and guilt that comes with that stuff so i like how you said that Thank you. That's also where like equity and equality come into play. Mm -hmm. Because when we start dismantling those systems that allow for such disparity to exist in like what we pay females, in what we allow females to do with their bodies, in what we allow to be said about females, then once we are able to dismantle that, then those things don't become as much of an issue because then you're looking at each other as two equal human beings and you treat people differently when you see them as your equal. And I just want to say like, I don't think it's like, about like a single conversation that you have either this stuff is the things that you're doing every day and the way that you're talking about all of your kids and their bodies and their their body safety stuff you know who gets to make decisions about their body so these are like all things that become you know normalized and implied with decisions that you're making every day in the way that you talk to your kids Um, and we talked about this a little bit in some of our gender discussion around like how we like focus on physicality with girls often more than we will with boys like how they look and something being pretty or cute and just those subtle messages that are being taken in and even the same when on the flip side with how we talk to boys the subtle messages that they're taking in about who they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing that end up being not helpful with um, mm-hmm. moving away from this kind of risk. And mm-hmm. I also want to note that all of the same is true for kids that are maybe not living in that binary, right? Who are mm-hmm. not identifying as male or female or that are trans. Take everything that we've said about how that impacts a cis boy and a cis girl and then kind of amplify it if we also mm-hmm. don't feel like we fit in that identity that's been prescribed to us. If it sounds complicated in the way that we're talking about it, it's because it is, right? It's mm-hmm. ongoing. It's, it's not a single conversation. Mm-hmm. It's a yes and all the time with moving away from who's to blame right if if and also somehow building in safety Just getting back to, uh, I guess, the equity piece of it and just to personalize it a little bit more. When confronted, I guess, with these barriers to what you're able to do or where you're able to park your car or where you're able to stay as far as curfew goes, can you guys pinpoint an age when you became consciously aware of this is really different from the rest and this is something that I have to actually take seriously from this point moving forward because I I doubt a lot of males can relate to that. At least cisgendered males can relate to that. Yeah, well, just like small things where you sort of are figuring it out subconsciously like Megan I remember in um, one of our gender episodes you were saying how when you were younger you wanted to be a boy not because you didn't want to be a girl but you wanted the access Mm -hmm. and I felt the same way where I I wanted to be a boy when I was younger because for me a lot of that looked like sports so Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a boy so that I could play professional sports and make that like my main like make that my source of income and just be what I did with my life Uh, so like just sort of but like if you had asked me then I probably would have been like five, six years old, and I wouldn't have been able to tell you anything about, you know, pay equity and stereotyping. (laughs) I wouldn't have had the language. You probably would have. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I did peak pretty early. (laughs) But, you know, not being able, like, not having the terminology, but still, like, subconsciously, that's in there. Those are the decisions that I'm making, and that's what I'm verbally able to say. But in terms of the safety piece, I think... 
probably somewhere around like middle school, junior high kind mm-hmm. of years. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, you know, going to friends' houses and then like if I was there after dark, like I remember like running home. But I remember also in my head being like, okay, I'm going to run home, but I'm not going to run as fast as I can because I need to have another gear in the case I become <laughs> unsafe, then mm-hmm. I need to be able to go even faster, which is like something I'm pretty sure that like most um, cisgendered men don't have to think about. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Like, I think that you internalize messaging very early on that you're not maybe not able to articulate what it is that you're taking in. But just when Abby was talking about being very small and sort of like recognizing, yeah, there's just like an access difference or there's a power differential, but it's not like you could put it into those words as like a four-year-old or a five-year-old. But in terms of knowing there was a risk to my body and my person, I think middle school, because of puberty and because of the onset of sexuality, kids are sort of like going from being little kids to being tweens and teenagers at that time and starting to experiment with things like relationships and crushes and even sex and sexuality at that age. And I have like distinct memories of feeling like my body was really on display, right? Like, and Mm -hmm. those things were not very Mm. well, I would argue like in the era I was growing up in, um, policed around like talking about young women's bodies and boys that were our age, you know, making comments or even just like something that we kind of like brush off as innocent behavior that's just kind of fooling around, like a bra snap, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just like such a bigger signifier than just teasing. It's like Mm -hmm. a very vulnerable moment for a young woman when they have to start wearing a bra because their body's changing. And then to have that sort of vulnerability really put on display and made fun of, those kind of things I think really like made me feel turned inward. And, And I don't know if fear is there for sure, but it's more just like a a very, very um, strong awareness that my body's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. It's going to make me a target. That's so, so interesting to hear you guys say that, especially at that age. Like we're talking middle school, so 12 mm-hmm. years old kind of thing, 12, mm-hmm. 13. And at that at that stage, as far even as we go as sexuality was concerned, like that was probably one of the furthest things from 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 my mind, and I'm sure a lot of cisgendered mm-hmm. males' minds until like you know, because I guess you know boys develop <laughs> a little bit later than everybody else. So for years, you're dealing with a situation where you guys are hyper conscious of that and going through that, while the immature males and not making any excuses mm-hmm. for anything, obviously, but just the fact that they're so immature mm-hmm. and pea-brained <laughs> doing things like that, maybe not understanding the consequences, like you said, of fooling around of a mm-hmm. bra snap. And yeah, and I'm sure there was many that did understand that, but just the fact that it's almost like you have two different species mm-hmm. <laughs> contained in this one environment where the consequences on one could be long-lasting and the other's not even processing that. So like when you were saying earlier about starting these conversations mm-hmm. earlier and trying to get you, youth kids to understand some of this stuff, I guess, before you get to those extremely vulnerable years is so important from different perspectives. So that was, yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing those pieces. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's definitely an, an eye opener for me. Like, I'm sure that those kids at that time, like I grew up in the nineties, which all of us probably did. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think Bell's older than us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say early nineties, early nineties. Um, right? 
I feel strongly that those same experiences don't even happen if people are having different kinds of discussions with their kids much earlier on Mm -hmm. and talking more frankly about you know there's like I feel like there's a um, kind of stigma even around talking about like sex and sexuality especially with young women's bodies and that's kind of even like core to it if you're noticing in yourself as a parent that you're not comfortable having those conversations push yourself to have them anyway like Mm -hmm. start with you the way that we model our comfort with that stuff translates for our kids so if we make it very normalized and we're having those discussions i feel confident that we don't see the same kind of experience for anybody at that age when they're developing yeah because then it becomes about having empathy and respect for other people and just like understanding what's just kind of a normal part of existence whether that's you know, like a normal part of every individual's existence. So like whether that's, you know, wearing a bra Mm -hmm. or taking hormone suppressants or Mm -hmm. being really smelly because (laughs) your sweat glands have started developing in a different way. Getting pit hair. (laughs) Now I feel like I'm taking shots at you. But that's important that you say that because there's equitable, well, uh, equitable is maybe not the right word, but there are comparable experiences for young men that feel stigmatizing. Like I'm sure, Belle, that as a young guy in the change room at gym or whatever, there were things that were happening between young men that were, um, you know, like playing on the same themes around development and sexuality, but targeting different specifics and so those things do have they might impact slightly differently because of the way culture and gender and power and all this nonsense plays out but they still have a negative impact so i love that you said that and i love that you included the idea of like hormone suppressants because then when we're talking about kids that don't fit the binary or that are um trans even normalizing that piece right when we all hit puberty there's different things that are going to happen for us some of us that are cis are going to have these experiences some of us that are trans or non-binary might have these other experiences and just having those Mm -hmm. conversations normalizing Mm -hmm. and it's all part of a healthy development for whoever you are Mm -hmm. but there's always ways that we can make it easier and more comfortable and just like less intense Mm -hmm. totally oh it was so bad (laughs) 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 do you need a minute Meg do you need a minute I'm getting hot (laughs) I got (laughs) a flashback I guess one of the, uh, ah, whatever, I'm just going to say it. Like, I guess a bit Mm -hmm. of the pushback that comes from is, I guess, information overload, especially at, I guess, like certain Mm -hmm. ages, ages as well, I guess, as levels of intelligence. So I guess, for example, like I said, this episode or these episodes got in my head and I was just thinking about them constantly. Then I bumped into a, to a friend from high school at a ice cream place and she was there with, uh, with her two kids, two boys and, uh, the big time ice cream (laughs) place here in, uh, here in Winnipeg. So people know what ice cream place I'm talking about. Okay. So we're there (laughs) and they've got, like a million flavors and a million varieties of these different things. So they were coming in uh, for milkshakes. And so the kids are asking, because I guess they were the age where they couldn't read, they're like, oh, what flavors are there? And she's like, oh, well, there's uh, chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla. And I guess that's what really made me look around at first to, to recognize it, because I'm like, I'm looking at the board and there's <laughs> almost a hundred flavors. Like, what do you mean there's only. What do you mean those only those three flavors? Like, are machines broken? Do they not have the flavors back? Like, I got worried myself. <laughs> so then uh, they I, they they ran off to do whatever and like wait to off to the side while she was going up to place the order. And we kind of had some small talk, and I was like, "Well, 
do you know something that I don't know? Like, <laughs> how come uh, you said there's only three flavors? And she's like, if I tell them about all these other flavors and all these other possibilities, we're going to be here forever while they try to right. decide what flavor that they want. And then they're going to be regretting what flavors they didn't get for the rest of the week. It's going to be a whole big thing. If I give them those three options, mm-hmm. then it's easy for them mm-hmm. to decide and we're good to go. So I guess relating this back to gender and in sexuality is at what age is it really too much information for your kids, I guess, in your own personal opinions? And the pushback is, why don't we wait until kids are older before giving them all these other options so they don't just do the kid thing? And I got air quotes going for all of you who can't see here at home. Where they just do the kid thing and pick one thing this week, pick another thing that week and that week. Like, you know what but I mean? But why you can't they I'm pick one thing this. this week, one thing next week? Like, that's sort of part of gender exploration and gender play. And mm-hmm. so I think part of it, too, is that, like, what's older? Because just because you wait to talk to them about something till they're older doesn't mean it's not happening for them. It mm-hmm. just means they're not getting information that might help them. Mm-hmm. And then I think another part of that, too, is that you don't have to give all of the information in one sitting. Like, none of this is one-off conversations where you're just like, information, 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 ah, good, done. So you can give little bits of information here, <laughs> little bits of information there. As something comes up, you, you mention it so that everything just becomes normal parts of conversation. And it's just an ongoing conversation that you have. And the words that you use and the examples that you give will change as they get older and they're like developmentally able to process process things in different ways and so like you just always need to meet your kid where they're at and just you know like that's sort of your job I think is to figure out how you can speak to your child in a way that can reach them and that's not a small task it's a very difficult task um And it's an ongoing thing, right? Because we're always learning as parents, too. And so it's one of those things, too, where, like, I might tell my child something and then realize, oh, that that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, I fucked that up. Mm -hmm. We're good with swears. Just double-checking now that I've already said it. No, we are not. that. But you know, and then it's okay also to like make those mistakes, and then be like, you know what? I gave you misinformation, and so like this is actually what I should have said. Because it's okay to be wrong. I mean, it doesn't feel great to admit, but it's okay to be wrong. I couldn't say it better. I mean, the one thing I would say to you is, we're already downloading them with tons of information about gender mm-hmm. kids are being gendered before they're mm-hmm. born right with mm-hmm. gender reveal parties and the things we buy and so i guess it's what i would challenge people on is how is that information that they're being loaded up with that is significant less for them to internalize than providing a larger scope of options i guess is kind of where i live with it so they're already internalizing tons of information about gender if mm-hmm. even when anti sexuality and you know like who people are in partnerships with all that stuff they're already taking all that information in by the things we're saying and doing if we're choosing to have those conversations maybe specifically limited in a particular way and the reality is is that when they are only getting that information and if it doesn't fit for them that's that can be really harmful Mm -hmm. so they to think that they're not thinking about gender and sexuality even as young as like little like verbal right like as young as we can be conscious it's just not realistic. They are thinking about those things because we're loading them up with those things 
all the time with the fact that we have gender and we talk about it and we are Mm -hmm. sending all those messages and i think where the risk lives if we don't provide like in the way that abby was just saying not by sitting down and being like okay here's all the things that you can be but like in the way that we like broaden how we talk about things just subtly and normalizing um kids run the risk of not seeing themselves in those discussions or feeling like something's wrong with them or feeling like they don't fit because when a kid does have those feelings they're having them by not talking about them doesn't mean that they don't exist they're there so Mm -hmm. i guess my take on that is always it's more important to me that a kid who is going to be at risk of feeling unseen and unsafe ultimately sees themselves in those conversations versus overwhelming a kid who maybe isn't going to live with that same kind of oppression. Does that make sense? Yes, I think it does. And I think we also have to keep in mind too, like kids are kind of born as blank slates. Mm -hmm. So it's not overwhelming them. Like they don't know how much information is out there. They don't know any of these things. And so we're the ones teaching it to them. So if you're expanding what is available to them in their kind of life education, Mm -hmm. then like they'll just roll with it. Yeah. And I work with kids on this topic and I do get, I do get met with this pushback sometimes from parent communities. I understand if this isn't something that you know a lot about and Mm -hmm. it's new for you as a parent, I have empathy around that. It's overwhelming. It's a lot. It's also like Mm -hmm. it, it can be made to feel like you're doing it wrong and that you're being harmful. And I can understand why also people may even feel defensive about that, like that they're Mm -hmm. trying to preserve innocence or a sense of, you know, how they understand things. But what I think that they don't realize is that their kids already get it. When I'm working with kids, later elementary school aged kids, it's like not a big deal for them for the most part Mm -hmm. like for the Mm -hmm. most part, because of the way that we like we are starting to normalize some of these discussions their parents are more freaked out about the conversation than they are. They, they, it's not a big deal to them. It doesn't overwhelm them. They understand it. They just see that people are people and this is who people can be. So I always think that's kind of interesting that what I hear from parents is that it's going to overwhelm them. It's going to confuse them. But what I'm actually seeing happen in a classroom is none of that, that they get it, that they're here for it. Part of that too is like when you're saying like parents are saying it's overwhelming and it's going to confuse them. Mm -hmm. I think maybe sometimes that's projection too, right? Because maybe the parent is feeling overwhelmed and the parent is feeling confused Mm -hmm. and that's totally okay. But I think that's also something to ask and be like, oh, if I'm worried about my child having this information, is it because I don't know how to talk to them about this information? Is it because I don't understand this information? I'm not comfortable with this information. And so I think kind of poking at the root of that discomfort is important. Mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, we all have blind spots Mm -hmm. and we all have areas that we're not comfortable with. We all have strengths. We all have areas that we want to work on and that's okay because that's just part of being human. And so I think just looking at that before deciding for your child whether or not it's something that you think they can handle, ask yourself, is this something that I think I can handle? this is why we share a brain because really I was just butting in to finish your sentence but um, and when you were saying checking with yourself I think like it's also really cool to model that you don't know things even with kids that are maybe slightly older it's okay to be like I didn't grow up with this understanding of gender this is new for me but I think what is like the most essential part of it is that it's safe and okay so if a kid is exploring something and you don't get it it doesn't resonate for you it's not something that you feel like you know a lot about that's okay it's okay to also be like i don't know very much about this but it seems like you're happier when x so i'm going to try to learn and you can teach me 
that's also okay. When we do that, do we run the risk of false positives where we're saying, okay, it's okay, Michael, if you want to change your name to Michelle, that that's good. And the kid does that. And then a month later, two months later, six months later, it's like, oh yeah, no, that was, that was a huge, huge mistake. So I want to be Michael again. Is there a danger in doing that? But what would the danger be? Like, cool. Now you're Michael again. <laughs> like, cause you know, like- <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing. like I think I don't know why we're so scared like there's so many things like people change their minds we all we explore we change our minds and that's how we figure out what we want our thing to be but it's by trying this trying that exploring here exploring there maybe I'm wearing a dress today maybe I'm wearing pants tomorrow maybe I'm wearing like I don't know a skirt the next day like (laughs) are skirts still a thing good skirt reference (laughs) love it I have, sh- I have shares in scores, yeah. so, you know, I'm just trying to get that stock up there. <laughs> Wendy's days, Wendy days. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't see the harm in changing your mind. Because I think, you know, I think a lot of people would automatically go to, well, if you let this child make this decision and then they transition and then they were mistaken. But not everything is about necessarily jumping right into transitioning, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's not a decision that anybody makes lightly. Yeah our fear about that and the risk that we think lives with that is sort of layered. First of all, I think we have fear that our child's going to be subjected to cruelty because they are making a choice for themselves that maybe makes them a target. That's a real concern, but I think they have a similar amount of risk often in not being able to explore that to their own Mm -hmm. self worth, to their own identity. We know that trans kids are at a like profoundly statistically higher rate for self-harm and for suicide so for me when we talk about risk i'm thinking about well which risk is more realistic and ultimately what the data tells us is the risk of that child who maybe is gender non-binary or transgender being harmed because of not being able to explore in a safe way who they are is for me probably what the highest risk is in terms of what if they change their mind and then I would agree with Abby it's like well then they change their mind and that's not who they are and we are also continuing to understand gender in like a very binary way so maybe they're not Michael or Michelle but they're something totally different than that as well and in order to like figure Mm -hmm. that out because we have such a dominant binary around gender that like tells us it's A or B maybe a kid needs to do that exploring and doing that back and forth and then like culturally like how are we policing the risk for those kids so are we intervening Mm -hmm. are we making sure that we're creating safe space for kids to be gender creative and to figure out who they are because we know that if they do that they are going to be safer at the end of the day because death by suicide is something that you can't change yes exactly and like that's where i live with it ultimately i'm like knowing that risk is just so real and so profound Mm -hmm. and so permanent for me it's a risk assessment that risk is far more concerning than being confused or maybe wanting to go back to michael or maybe even being targeted in in a particular way by peers yeah, I love that perspective of the fact that, yeah, dealing with the confusion is a lot less permanent than dealing with the pain and the long-lasting things that could happen just because of your lack mm-hmm. of openness to an mm-hmm. idea. So oh, that, that's interesting. <laughs> that's a good way to, to respond to that. And it'd be interesting to see how listeners or people that you know that have that perspective, how receptive they are to, to mm-hmm. that idea and to that conversation. So... We're 
drop back into the the question bank. <laughs> I had thought I had it sorted out, but now we're just going in at random here. So whatever comes That's up. That's how next, we roll about. <laughs> My favorite color is purple. Oh, yeah. Next Perfect. question. Yeah. <laughs> purple. It's a Syrah okay. that I'm drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Closest thing I have is blue, so we'll go with a blue one then. Talked a lot about like the insidious stuff that's there for boys, mm-hmm. because that's sort of like what we're grappling with. Actually, well, speaking I, of insidious, I also yeah. wanted to say boys will be boys. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Boys will be shitty, violent, aggressive, uh, uncontrollable plagues on society. Like that's my interpretation of that statement. Yes, and I think that's like insidious for boys, but it's also insidious for everybody else. Oh, big time. All right, so that's getting to the statement of boys will be boys, and I, I won't lie, I was surprised when I heard just, I guess, how angry, I heard the <laughs> anger in the, like, the vitriol in your voices. I wouldn't call it vitriol. statement, and I, <laughs> and I guess... I understand, or I, tr- well, I can't say that I understand, and that's why I wanted to talk to you guys about it, but I was imagining that a lot of that stems from oftentimes that statement, and I just, my mind goes to sports right away, and it goes to big uh, U.S. colleges and campuses, uh-huh. where a lot of times, you see, like, the crusty old dean is using that as a defense of star players, and I guess uh, the the repercussions that happen or go throughout to the sexual assault, to the sexual harassment that is allowed, I guess, or turned a blind eye to throughout, uh, like, you know, just picturing mm-hmm. like the good old boys in the boys club here using that to justify or to, but once again, turn a blind eye to the situations that come up in those situations. But I guess from my perspective, and I had to talk to a few of my teacher friends about this, but they're using it from a different perspective where anyone that's using it in that way is almost people that you could disregard right off the bat. So have they co-opted the statement from just general use of it, or have you guys just been inundated with that so much that so visceral, I guess, for you guys when you hear that, because like I said, it's anecdotal, obviously, but from a teacher perspective of the ones that I've talked to, the statement that they use or why they use it as often, I guess, as they do is simply because of the maturity levels that I guess exist, especially, I guess, at that late elementary, early middle school age between males and females, where the females are a little bit more mature and aren't just running around. I don't want to say like bashing their heads in the wall, but like eating dirt and different things like Mm, that. Yeah. I, for me, like the reason I find the statement as triggering as I do isn't because of its impact on girls as much as it is for me, the impact it has on boys. I think that it lowers the bar for boys. And even when we think about, you know, maturity gap or, you know, different like elementary school behavior, we start message that, you know, we have a low expectation of like what, their behavior can look like because there's something inherent about boys that you know that's that's going to be true they're going to be bashing their head against the wall they're going to be less mature and so i have to wonder is that behavior rooted in something that's real or is it rooted in something that we project so there is like i don't know i don't have the answer to that question is it re- is it truly the case that those boys 
their behavior is completely the result of their stunted development or is it because we've created a set of expectations that they are fitting into and I don't have a concrete answer and I'm sure there is studies and you know research out there that would speak to that but I just want to make sure we're asking the question if we say that even when we're talking about really young boys and we don't mean it in a you know we're not the crusty old dean who's trying to like get Brock Turner off but we're a teacher or we're a parent and we're just you know we're using that to sort of make sense of like a behavior differential I would just say let's challenge us to think a little bit more deeply about why that behavior differential might be there is it because of something inherent or is it because of something that we've created is my question and just to to add on to that because it's never used in a positive way no like it's always used to explain something negative that has occurred like it's not like say for instance let's talk about Chadwick Boseman because I will always want to talk about Chadwick Boseman but you know it's come to light recently that he donated part of his salary on the movie 21 Bridges to Sienna Miller so that she could get the pay that she deserved nobody was like oh my god Chadwick Boseman just like donated half his salary so that there would be pay equity boys will be boys like you know like that's not ever put onto a statement like that and so I think that's part of what makes the visceral reaction right because you know when somebody says boys will be boys then it's going to be followed by or has been preceded by something negative that's occurred yeah and i just like i hate to sell boys short like that right that there's Mm -hmm. something like inherently dysfunctional about boys or inherently delayed about boys that we yeah just have that such a low expectation of their behavior and what Mm -hmm. they're capable of yes like i want to expect my child to be a chadwick Mm -hmm. not a brock turner (laughs) me too (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Fair enough. But I guess with that with that statement alone, and I know you say that it's always related to negativity, but isn't it also related to and I guess <laughs> and I guess what side of the fence you, you stand on, but I guess even immaturity at times and in its own way doesn't necessarily have to be a, a negative thing, as I'm hoping and praying, because I still demonstrate a lot of these situations, being silly or goofy or whatever it is. I mentioned earlier, like eating dirt and eating mm-hmm. dirt isn't inherently a, a negative thing. It can be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Is that necessarily have to mean that that there is negative connotation with anyone operating in that in that mm-hmm. avenue i guess i was just interested at just the fact even that you would say that it's always a negative perspective or like how you mentioned that it was a triggering statement and i know you're saying that you're going to do an episode on masculine toxicity what else are those kind of triggers like i wouldn't have even thought that that would be a trigger except in those extreme and i think situations. When it, why it's a trigger for me with little kids is just because of the way that i know that it escalates as they get older and so even if we're meaning it in like kind of a benign way when boys are young and with the behaviors that you were just talking about bell i know the future of that statement right so i know that like where what's the progression of that statement right now it's eating dirt and being silly and all those things but it doesn't live in a vacuum right because we know that that statement then continues to be used in specific ways as boys get older and so i guess that's why when i think about it even if it's relatively benign maybe in how it's being used with a really young kid i feel like i know where it's going right by planting that seed so even if that behavior is sort of benign and maybe not terribly harmful to anybody else that 
statement becomes something that evolves for boys as they get older and as those behaviors that we associate with young men start to become harmful to other people so I mean that's kind of where I live with it and I, I totally hear what you're saying in terms of like not every behavior is going to be a harmful behavior or a problematic behavior but I also think about we don't give girls the same uh-huh. the same leeway to behave that way so we never say girls will be girls when they're being silly and when they're uh-huh. they're stepping outside of a box that is not prescribed to them and I noticed this even with girls in elementary school when we have young women or little girls who are behaving in a way that is traditionally like the silliness that we see from little boys in a classroom I would argue that I notice a stronger response to that behavior from little girls because it's much more outside of what's expected from them so I would say that's a trigger for me too is when we respond to kids in ways that try to limit them limit them because they're stepping outside of a box that we've created even when we don't even realize that we're doing that, but we need to recognize when we are doing that because it's harmful. And that, what does that message to then that little girl who's not getting the same girls will be girls because of her behavior? She's wrong and she's bad and she's doing something she's not supposed to be. And like as like about eating dirt, instead of saying like boys will be boys, kind of be like, yeah, some kids just do that. Yeah. For instance, I'm thinking of myself when I was little, I had a little friend down the street. He was a boy. I don't know whatever happened to him. So maybe he's still a boy. I don't know. But he uh, and I would play together and, like, collect bugs. And, like, you know, like, we were really into, like, playing in the dirt and collecting bugs. We'd go to the snake pits and play with garter snakes and stuff. And, like, you know, pick up worms. And then at some point, like, it's not like that suddenly became gross to me. But it was just, like, I understood that that was a boy thing. And so, like, I wasn't, I shouldn't be doing that at a certain point. That's powerful. Yeah, that is so so interesting just to hear both of you say that and verbalize that even with you Megan saying that you see a difference between the way that a young girl operating in one elementary class is treated as opposed to their their male counterpart especially for me and it's a bit different I guess but like coaching basketball and stuff and especially coaching with a lot of kids from the inner city that dichotomy has always been I guess closer to what you mentioned there Abby where girls and boys of a certain age are still operating in the same vein and the behaviors aren't really then related so much or it's not as genderized it's more now the stigma becomes I guess a socioeconomic status and now that's where the biggest difference comes in so and that's why I love podcasting and love being having these opportunities to talk to so many different people is just the different perspectives and the different way people come up also enlightens you to a whole bunch of different areas that I never, like I said, once I heard how triggered you were by that, I was like, I need to find out why or where this stems from because in my area, in my area of life, it hasn't been used in that way. I've seen it in the, obviously, like we talked about, like the extreme Mm -hmm. cases, but I've never even understood it to that degree because kid A and kid B, regardless of gender, are doing the same stupid stuff and they're going to be treated Mm -hmm. the same, the same way, right? Like, yeah, don't eat dirt right now because yeah, you have your lunch right over there. Go and eat your lunch. We're back to the dirt eating. (laughs) (laughs) What's with these kids? Take them out to a basketball tournament and they want to eat more dirt than they actually want. You guys have a systemic issue there. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a lot, lot of dirt, a lot of available dirt. But we love the conversation too because, like, 
we have a certain perspective and we've done some learning around certain things and all of that is also a privilege right it's a privilege Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. have access to information and to have these discussions and so that is even a big part of like in our podcast world what we are hoping to provide some access to nobody's like wrong or bad or you know like shame's not our brand for not knowing or having a different perspective it's this that is valuable right being able to have a discussion and not come to the table dead fast in an opinion but curious Belle, that's totally my read on all of your questions they're questions of from a place of curiosity and that's how we build bridges right even if at the end it's like i still don't know if that resonates with me at least there's a discussion and there's a dialogue. I mean, this is a thing we see such mm-hmm. polarized discussions. I mean, you know, obviously in like our political landscape, there's no <laughs> curiosity about where someone's mm-hmm. at and what they're thinking and why they're thinking that. Yes. Um, and if we can invite curiosity to the table, I honestly think we would live in an entirely different world than we live in right now. I love it. I love it. And I've got a bunch more questions that I want to ask you guys with, but I mean, I stole so much of your time already, but I do want to end it on on one and this once again comes back to wording and it comes out to something that just stood out to me because I guess in a lot of ways I am a old school mentality in a lot of ways like I mentioned earlier I want to relate gender and race back to one another and what I'm talking about is I think it was part one when you guys were talking about perceived gender roles, the discussion Mm. about toughness. Ah, Someone falls down, you say they're tough or they take a hit and you say they're tough. And a lot of times that's directed at males and it, you guys equated it right away to being able to, I don't want to say hide, but I guess mask your emotions. Abby (laughs) pointed out, son fell down and uh, got back up and, someone was like oh well yeah you're so tough you didn't cry or whatnot and you're like Mm -hmm. well maybe it just didn't hurt like that like like that Mm -hmm. kind of thing right like the simple logic of it but then or i got the idea anyways that you guys were very against using like toughness as any kind of motivator i'm not against it as long as you're using it equitably like Mm -hmm. if you have kids of different genders and it's something that you're placing as a value for everybody but the reality is, is that, again, we don't live in a vacuum. And as even if we are in our own families, you know, being equitable about how we distribute that as a compliment, the rest of the world isn't. So how do we mitigate the impact of that outside of our own family, right? Because like, I'm sometimes like knee jerk like that, where I'm like, well, I don't do that. Like I do this in my family. And this is how I think about that. Something that maybe, you know, has an inequity built into it, but it's not how everybody's talking about it. And it's not culturally typically how it's been employed. And I think like why we get concerned about toughness for boys being such a celebrated trait is because of what it says to little boys about what's okay for them and what's not. Just like certain things for little girls send a certain message about what's okay for them mm-hmm. and what's not. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking too. I'm totally great with the word tough and I think it applies sometimes, but I think it's just when it's used as a way to suppress other emotions or as a way to sort of stop somebody from feeling what they're feeling. And those are those like super early learnings that kids take in that are subtle that, okay, I'm celebrated when I'm this, but I'm maybe not given space when I'm sad or I'm upset or I'm joyful or whatever those some of those other like emotions that we don't necessarily traditionally see the same kind of like excitement around with particularly gendered kids so if a 
little boy is crying because he got his feelings hurt you know like traditionally we don't always hear people say you're so good at letting me know how you're feeling right that's not traditionally something that we celebrate and so the message that is internalized is like this is the thing that i get celebrated for and this is not something that is being celebrated and those are messages that we take forward so we want to have like emotionally nuanced kids in every direction but sometimes we don't realize the impact of like how we talk about certain feelings versus others i guess and that's, I think, where that conversation lived. See, and I'm glad I followed up on that because I guess for me, especially when you talk about the perspective of toughness, and I don't mm-hmm. know if that's just coaching or sports or whatever, but I look at it from not only the physicality of it, but the mental, I guess, the intelligent aspect of it, and as well as the emotional. And like you guys mentioned, being able to share your feelings with the appropriate people is is a form of toughness, being able to understand a situation and being able to block out distractions and stay focused on something is a form of toughness, as well as, I guess, that physicality, obviously, of, okay, you just landed on your butt, uh, you fell two inches, like, okay, now, show's (laughs) over, (laughs) let's go Mm -hmm. kind of thing, right? All of those perspectives have to be combined and, I guess, discussed and were discussed repeatedly with your child, regardless of the gender. And this is where the racial component came in for me. And this is one that I struggle with personally, is the fact that you come out of the oven a certain way and you already have certain challenges and certain barriers laid Uh against you. And you have to understand that everyone around you isn't necessarily your Uh champion or positive and will take things and use Uh that against you. So it's got to be able to identify in this where the mental Uh toughness comes in, who is on your side and who you can trust and be around and express, I guess, that vulnerability emotionally with those people and understanding that it might not be reciprocal based on certain situations and still be able to process that. So... Yes, so toughness toughness is one that uh, I hold near and dear to my heart, and I guess from a different perspective, and that was great to hear exactly what you guys were thinking and where that was coming from. Because, yeah, just at first glance, that's I guess that's the impression that I got was that I might need to really rethink the way that I was using some of that. Well, thanks for following up on it. We appreciate it. Yeah, and we talk a lot about this idea of intersectionality, which might be a new term for folks, but the way that different parts of our identity create nuance in how we experience the world or even different ways that we may experience oppression in the world. And so we go on for a whole other hour if we dug into that. But like what you're really speaking to there, Belle, is is the experience of intersectionality, right? Like when we see the experience of both race and gender creating complexity in how somebody's moving through the world and what, what creates safety in one person's context versus another person's and what those barriers might look like in one person's context versus another person. And so that's like, that's kind of what that's all about. And I mean, we could go on and on for much longer about that piece, but I think it's an important part to consider (laughs) how do other Uh identity factors impact how we experience gender also. Thank you guys uh, so much for the opportunity just to be able to talk with you guys and be part of the Gaining Thanks Momentum so much, uh, community we're, here. We're big fans of Thirst World, so we're happy to be a part of this. And next time, we look forward to chatting with Nick and B as well. Mm-hmm. Let's get everybody in here. Oh, we'll have a party already. <laughs> thanks for having us, Beth. We'll Cheers. Hey, thanks again, guys. If you like what you just heard, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you find podcasts. Gaining Momentum is written, 
produced and edited by Abby and Megan, with music by Evan Dysart, and podcast art by Catherine Katja. And a special thank you to our podcast mentor, Belle, from the podcast, Thirst World Problems. Thanks, Belle. Thanks, Belle. And if you want to find any more info on any of their work, please check out the links in our podcast description.